0: Okay, we're on Acts 9, 5, and 6. Saul's conversion. He saw the heavenly vision. The vision is from Christ. He says, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. He replied, but get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, you may have to help me. Did we talk about day last time? I think we did. And a big percentage of the times it's used in the New Testament are in Luke Acts. And Luke uses it to denote divine necessity. So must here is what is God's will for Saul and how God is going to use him. But he doesn't know yet. He's going to be blind and end up in the city. And another disciple, Ananias, is going to come to him. I think you probably all know the story. Let's pray, okay? Thank you, dear Lord, for helping us learn from what you've told us in the Bible. Thank you for this beautiful day and for the Christian fellowship that we have Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness to help us learn and grow and encourage one another. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Saul sees the heavenly vision, and it's the very Christ who he'd been persecuting. I think we mentioned last week he was persecuting Christians, but Jesus so identifies with his own followers that when they are persecuted, Christ is. When we attack Christians, we attack Christ, the Lord of the church. And so we need to be careful how we treat fellow Christians. I wanted to cite a scholar I think is very good, uh, Dr. Longenecker. I used his commentary on Galatians when I was preaching through Galatians and now I found in my laga software that I also have a commentary by him on Acts he says this quote Paul would have had no great problem with either Judaism or Rome had he contented himself with a mission to the Jews and Christianity would have been spared the head on collision with both Judaism and Rome but Luke's point in chapter 9 when he makes twice more in chapters 22 and 26 is that Christ himself brought about this change in the strategy of divine redemption it was not a strategy Paul thought up or program given to him by another It was a compelling call that came directly from Christ himself. When God converts somebody, when God calls someone into the ministry, when God sends someone on a mission in the book of Acts, it's a sovereign work of God. And in this case, because Saul was such a violent enemy of christ and christians it's a very powerful and supernatural thing that happens i mean god really got his attention and god has means to accomplish his purposes one of the sad things that i've seen happen and i was in a seminary that had eventually caved into all of this is where they turn everything into a A sociological issue okay if we can learn people groups and learn people movements I'm thinking of some of the missiology that's been taught places like Fuller Seminary then we can strategize and get a committee together and figure out how to do whatever it is we're going to do and then we're to devise a version of Christianity that would be appealing to people as they are in their social selves. So we'll make different kinds of Christianity. I think I mentioned this a little last week. And boy, did I debate that when I was in seminary because it came in halfway through my seminary education. And I just vehemently debated it again and again to the point where they were kind of sick of seeing me. <laughs> Remember, Eric, when the two of us walked in together? Yeah, the almost passed out. He goes, oh, <laughs> this guy again. I, yeah. I come in with Eric, because Eric ran into the same thing. And pretty soon we don't have a message. What we need to know is the means God has promised to use to convert people is the gospel. And any time a person comes to Christ. Now, Saul's conversion is obviously very, very dramatic. Not all conversions are as dramatic. Dear Saint Saul, uh, God will do what he promised to do through the means he promised to use. I'm not against having wisdom about what people are like and what they're willing to do you know maybe you don't invite your Orthodox Jewish neighbor over for a pork roast so you can talk to him about Christ they talked about things like that at seminary but see a lot of the things are just so obvious you don't need a PhD to know so they use obvious examples then they go into all of this. They spent years, years, degrees, and pretty soon they're studying nature, and the supernatural has no place whatsoever in their understanding of conversion. So I would just argue common sense things we probably already know. We don't need a course. But what we do need is to believe that God will use the means he promised And he'll do what he said he would do. God converted Saul of Tarsus, who was a violent persecutor of the church, who was Jewish, and ironically chose him to be the one to have a major mission to the Gentiles. Why? Because that's what God chose to do. Now, this same Dr. Longenecker identified five points of things that were revealed here and as this narrative goes on to this Saul of Tarsus the first one was Saul began to understand that despite his zeal and sense of doing God's will his previous life and activities in Judaism lay under God's rebuke he wasn't doing God's will. he thought he was but he was actually an enemy He learned that directly through this theophany secondly Saul could not accept the fact that Jesus whose followers he had been persecuting was alive exalted and therefore Saul had to revise his whole estimate of the life teaching and death of the Nazarene because God had beyond any question vindicated him this is the jesus exalted into heaven whom saul was persecuting there was no dead body yes i was thinking about
1: this this week we see is it on bob yes okay we see uh people who uh are murderers and they're in uh, a prison for life let's say and they get converted. And the interesting thing about Paul is he thought he was at the top of his game. He wasn't, yet, he, th- these other people, they're at the low end. of. They can't go any lower. And then they come to G- have a come-to-Jesus moment, whereas Paul, he thinks he's doing the stuff for yeah. God. He's yeah. at the top of his game. He didn't see
0: any need. Okay, one of the things that they try to teach us. We got to identify felt needs and then make people think that Christianity will make them happier people. Their felt needs will be met. And I remember even debating in seminary class using this. What need did Paul feel to be a Christian? (laughs) Not exactly. He, that's the last thing in the whole world he Saul of Tarsus ever thought he needed was to serve Christ. He thought he needed to kill the Christians. Then I have a third thing here. Saul came to appreciate that if Jesus is the nation's Messiah and a fulfillment of Israel's ancient hope, then traditional eschatology, rather than Merely dwelling on the future must be restructured to emphasize the inaugurated factors associated with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, let me explain that simply. The Jews did not have in their theology, as far as what we know from extant literature, the idea of a suffering Messiah. They weren't even looking for that. Now, it's not that it wasn't in the Old Testament prophecy, but they weren't looking for it. They were looking for a Davidic king to destroy Israel's enemies and restore the kingdom and sit on the throne. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, that would have been the end of that idea. Well, I guess this can't be the King of David. What did they say to him when they mocked him on the cross? Anybody remember that? What did they say, Eric? Do you remember? You got a mic? No, you
2: know what? I'm actually looking up something. Well, you look something else. Yeah, I'm sorry. Take yourself down off.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you're the Son of God, come on down. We'll accept you. If you come off the cross, maybe then you can defeat the Romans. But if you're going to die, we don't want you. And the question, why do you persecute me, says Long. Longenecker, Saul came to realize something of the organic and indissoluble unity that exists between Christ and his own. I already mentioned that. Christ identifies with the church that he's the head of. Fifth, Saul came to understand that he had a mission to carry out for Christ. This is a call narrative besides a salvation narrative. So he has a call, he has a mission. And he finds out that Christ having died on the cross wasn't the end of Christ's mission. Nor was it the end, eventually he'll find out, of the hope of Israel. So we find out now that the advent that's prophesied in the Old Testament happens in two parts. The first advent, he comes fulfilling Isaiah 53 as the suffering Messiah. A future advent, yet to come, he will come as the conquering king. And so everything prophesied about him must be
2: fulfilled. Yeah, I'm sorry, I finally found it. It's uh, in First Peter 1. Uh, Peter, remember, he had it wrong, Bob. He had the fact that in his mind there was only glories of the Messiah. And so you're exactly right. He believed... Not in an inauguration and a consummation, but it was only the consummation of the Messianic age. But what's interesting is after Pentecost he gets it right, and in First 1 Peter one ten he says concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories
0: to the, follow. No, the, the sufferings and the glories to exactly. follow.
2: Exactly. So then he got it right. Now he
0: knows. Now he knows. Yeah. But they didn't see, my research has shown they didn't really understand that yeah. until it's happened. Yeah. Yesterday, Andy Olson had me over to his studio to record radio for his Echo Zoe podcast on the Essential Series. It'll, this will be broadcast in January he thought he'd grab me while I still have a voice (laughs) and we were talking about the resurrection of Christ and the biblical proof for the resurrection and why the resurrection of Christ the fact the grave was empty and that Jesus really literally bodily came out of that grave and appeared to witnesses And bodily ascended into heaven is a cornerstone of the evidence for the veracity of all the Christian claims. Why? Why is that so important? Because if Christ is raised, we were looking at 1 Corinthians 15, let's go the other way. Paul said if he's not raised, we're of all men the most pitiful, right? Because we say that he's raised. The whole truth of everything we teach and claim is vindicated by Christ's own resurrection. Why is that so important? Because Jesus predicted his own resurrection. He said that he would be crucified and raised on the third day. We cited that on the radio. And nobody in human history besides Christ ever predicted his own resurrection from the dead and pulled it off. And one of the things that everybody agreed on was that the tomb was empty. Nobody claimed they had a dead body. Not the Jews, not the Romans. The Roman guards were right there as the first witnesses. They took money to lie about it. The women were there as first witnesses and they went to tell the disciples where were they? They ran away because they were scared to death. And so one of the theories is, well, the disciples made up the story. Well, that's refuted by two facts. One of them is just human nature. So the men are going to make up a story where they're the cowards and the women are the heroes we were scared to death we ran away but Mary she was right there came right there and talked to those guards and we were off hiding in fear well that's kind of a unlikely story to make up and the second reason why they wouldn't make it up is that it identifies women as the witnesses the very first witnesses of the resurrection And in ancient Rome and in Judaism, at that time in history, women's testimony was not allowed in a court of law. So why come up with a story where the witnesses can't be witnesses? And some of the critics who examined it, like this Morrison who moved the stone, 1910, came to the conclusion that the best explanation for everything was that Jesus was really raised So that's what we did on the radio yesterday so Paul who was Saul at this point actually sees in a theophany the Christ he was persecuting the resurrected Christ exalted into heaven witnesses saw him bodily ascend into heaven he sits at the right hand of God, and he's coming again. That's our faith. That's what we preach. That's what we believe. That's the foundation of biblical Christianity. We don't believe in myths. We do not believe cleverly devised tales. Oh, there it is.
1: And I was just going to say also that after the resurrection, the eyewitnesses, the disciples, were the ones that God testified through that they're trustworthy because they perform miracles.
0: Yeah, they were also appointed. Yes, not only did Christ teach us and prove that we should listen to him, good point, because he walked on water, but he appointed the disciples and authorized them who were eyewitnesses To also be apostles, and they did signs. We read about in the book of Acts. Mike, well, I think another uh, convincing
1: uh, proof or evidence is the fact that uh, how many people would be likely to die for a lie? All all the apostles were were martyred, uh, except for John, of course.
0: Yeah, but uh, I think one of those guys would uh, would would say, "No way!" No way. Yeah, I'm not here. Here's a good here's a good. uh, Point on that, Mike, because the critics have debated it. People will die for a lie, like a false religion. But they won't die for what they know was a lie. Do you see the difference? People think Muhammad is God's prophet. They really believe that. They're willing to die for it. It's a lie. And they're not gaining anything but lost souls dying for Muhammad. But if Jesus wasn't raised and they lied about it, they would know it's a lie. And they wouldn't actually believe it. They're just trying to get something out of it. Let's start a religion and take up an offering. We all know this is a lie, but we're not going to tell anybody. Once you find out, you're going to die why be committed to what you know is a lie there's a difference between a known lie and a lie that you're deceived about that's important now Eric could you read Acts 9-7 Acts
2: 9-7 says then the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice but seeing no one
0: Right. Now, some people have tried to find contradictions in the Bible, so they look at the three accounts, this one, the one in Acts 22, and the one in Acts 26, and they see things that they say are contradictions. Well, one thing I know for a fact, having been studying Luke-Acts now for about 12 years continually, using some of the finest resources, Luke is brilliant. If Luke thought this was contradictory, he wouldn't have written it that way. He's telling us what really happened. Here's what is the reality. Paul, who back then was Saul, he got the revelatory part of this event. Flashing light, things happened. It was supernatural. But Jesus wasn't revealing himself himself to his traveling companions. He was revealing himself to Saul. Okay, I'm gonna get a quote this longenecker. He has right? yeah, so. a great commentary. Quote Some commentators have seen a flagrant contradiction in Luke's source materials, which he unwittingly incorporated into his finished product. Well, frankly, now Long and Ecker not agree with that. Luke didn't unwittingly do anything, believe me. But since the Greek noun phone means both sound in the sense of any tone or voice and articulated speech in a sense of language, undoubtedly, It was understood by all concerned, as the respective context suggests, to mean that while the whole group traveling to Damascus heard the sound from heaven, only Saul understood the spoken words. There you go. There's no contradiction. There's just a range of meaning for the word "phone." They heard, but they didn't comprehend the spoken words. That was for Saul say Bob, just one, one quick comment.
2: Um, when I was doing that message in Canada on grace alone, I came across this passage in Exodus 33 where, do you remember Moses wants God to reveal himself to him and to give a theophany, and God acquiesces. He does that. But what's very interesting, when you read the account in Exodus 33, what fully reveals who God is is not the theophany, but rather the words that Yahweh proclaims about himself, namely that he will show compassion upon those whom he'll show compassion and grace upon those who he'll show grace. So what's interesting is it's the words of Yahweh at Sinai that reveal who he is. The theophany in and of itself is deficient. It just shows, yes, God is there, but it's the words right. that actually reveal who he is. So the
0: people is. at the foot of the mountain. They have nothing. They yeah. see fire and smoke. Exactly. Very good. Yeah, so it's the same here. Okay. Oh.
2: I got free water. Oh, he's got water. <laughs> yeah.
0: He gets a astute reading award.
2: Thank you.
0: Very much like Sinai. The words were revealed to Moses. Moses was the one who went into the tent of meeting and God spoke words. One of the claims of biblical Christianity is that God gives articulated, meaningful revelation by condescending. We know that God is totally other and he's transcendent, but he has chosen to condescend in a theophany to speak human languages that are meaningful to both God, the speaker, and Moses, the hearer, that are God's revelation to humans. And these are authoritative, inerrant words that reveal the truth. Theological liberalism denies that. Neo Orthodoxy says you have to take a blind leap. Words can't convey reality about God. But the Bible says God chose words. Moses and then the, other, the others, here in this case, Saul, understand exactly what God said. So the Ten Commandments are the in the literal, it says the 10 words. If I may go out on a limb here and try to add on to what Eric
1: said, uh, John 1:1 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the Word was with God, and the word was God. Lagos. So
0: Yeah, God speaks and we know, and we learn, and we're obligated to believe. Remember John 12, 48. Jesus said, there's one that will judge you in the last day. What is it? The words that I spoke. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, inherent and infallible, spoke meaningful, binding words, and we can know what God said. Yes. All this discussion reminds me what when Jesus says, those who have ears, let them hear. It kind of reminds me of that. Yes. I uh, a little preview of January's Echo Zoe podcast. One of the things I mentioned, I, looked, I went back and looked at a sermon I did in 2003 to refresh my own mind before I went to do the radio. And I was talking about this Pincus Lapid. Anybody else heard of him? Nobody? Well, John Ankerberg has a video. This is from the 80s. Back then it was a VHS tape, and we watched in our men's meeting back in the 80s. And Pincus Lapid was a, is a Jewish rabbi, or was at least in the 80s, who did research historically to determine... Whether the Christian claim that Jesus was raised from the dead was true. And he did all the research and came to the conclusion Jesus was really raised from the dead. But he didn't convert. He just rationalized and said, well, that's just for the Gentiles. So he literally, historically believed Jesus was raised but he didn't want to serve him. But he knew that he really was. And you know who else believed that Jesus was raised? The Roman guards. Did they fall on their knees and say, forgive me? No. They got afraid that they'd lose their lives for not keeping that body in the grave. And so what did they do? Remember Matthew? They took money to lie about it. So, what do we learn from this? It's not enough to know facts about Jesus. We need to believe and trust and be converted. It's not enough to just have historical facts, as important as they are. The guards knew the facts. And they lied the women knew the facts they were bewildered but they came to faith thomas doubted but when he saw the facts he said to jesus my lord and my god dear listeners today are you willing to say to jesus christ my lord and my god i know that you're raised i know that you're at the right hand of the Father, and that you're always living to make intercession for us. He's, as he says in Hebrews 2, he's not ashamed to be called our brother, our brethren. We're his brothers and sisters if we believe in him. One more slide here. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open. He could see nothing so they took him by the hand and led him into Damascus he was unable to see for three days did not eat or drink so now he's blind he's the last thing he saw was Christ the glorified Lord in heaven but now he's blind there's symbolic value in Saul's condition He's literally at the end of his old way of life. It's not going, never going to be the same for Saul of Tarsus. Never again is he going to go rounding up Christians to imprison them or kill them. Never again is he going to persecute Jesus. In fact, he must suffer many things because it's God's purpose for him. God can and will intervene and change things for Saul he's going to use a previously unknown person by the name of Ananias not the Ananias that shows up later in the Bible and we'll talk about that soon maybe even today but we'll see I got something else I want to cover but uh, God is able to do Whatever needs to be done to get us to the right place at the right time with the right message. I totally believe that. And he uses whoever he chooses to use. And what we need to know is that we have the message right. Jesus is the resurrected Christ. He's the Lord. Anything to add, Eric? Okay. I have one thing here from another great commentary I have oh I'm so thankful for the tools local software and all I've spent some money on it over the years but the best money I ever spent I have so many tools there's no excuse to get up and preach and not know what you're talking about you didn't try what was that thing Brian you're talking about Sermons.com or something? Why would you do that? When you can really know what's really true and preach that. Dr. Parsons, another great commentary I have. Hearing echoes of Isaiah help clarify Luke's point, says Parsons. In Isaiah, darkness, light, crooked, straight are used as images to describe the transformation of those opposing God. And he quotes Isaiah quote, I will lead the blind by a road they do not know and by paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. Isaiah 42, 16 Parsons points out I think correctly throughout Isaiah then a cluster of images is employed to contrast those who are resisting God's redemption with those who are following God's plan unrighteousness righteous, darkness light, blind seeing, crooked straight, deaf hearing it's all in Isaiah Saul's blindness, and later the opening of his eyes, is an appropriate symbol for this enemy of God who has attempted to reverse the plan of God. He goes from darkness to light. I hope that everyone here has gone from darkness to light. Now, I have a one-slide presentation, and I'm also prepared... To go on and ask, but the election is Tuesday. Some people are concerned, in fact, we all are. Here's my one slide. There's no printout. You'll have to look at it up there. Let me read it to you. I want to make some application and I want discussion. I want you to help me. I've been meditating on this for weeks and actually trying to apply it in my own life. And you know what? God uses it. And I'll tell you how. Let me read it. Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, we've done some conferences in the past on this. Our daughter Jessica is one by one by one putting them up on YouTube. If you haven't found it, go find Critical Issues Commentaries YouTube channel. In February of 2008, we did a conference on how do we hear from God. And there are five messages at that conference. And, uh, we found those on an old hard drive, and we able to recover them and put them up on YouTube. All part of God's providence that we even found the hard drive. And I would have totally forgot I did the conference. Oh, to be young! I did, we did a conference in November 2007, Faith at Risk, and then in 2008, I did a whole conference and I did all the preaching imagine how that would work now get through an hour is a miracle well but it's on YouTube so the young me is still around <laughs> let's unpack this this is life-changing and revolutionary if we tease out valid implications and applications this verse would get rid of what most of what's wrong in evangelicalism okay there's category two categories here that we need to clearly identify the secret things that belong to only God we know God is omniscient he knows all things and the revealed things that God has chosen to reveal to us now we believe and I think we got good evidence for it in sola scriptura scripture alone the only revealed things that are inerrant and infallible are found in scripture. Spiritism is forbidden. Okay, When people contact the spirit world to find out secret information, that's called occult. The word occult means secret so when we teach scripture alone we're identifying the things revealed they're for us they're truth they're saving truth they're inerrant truth they're truth revealed they'll be the basis for the final judgment according to John 12 48 now I was thinking about something because I was worried in fact I've been worried a lot of times in my life probably we all have and I was thinking too heavily about what do they think what's going to happen what is that person thinking about me did I offend them or not what about this, what about that What about all this stuff starts working in your brain if I'm the only one, that's fine but it happened to me. And I was thinking, do I actually know to be true what I'm worrying about? In other words, do I know the thoughts and intent of somebody else's heart? No. How well do I know the thoughts and intent of my own heart? (laughs) Marginally so. God knows the thoughts and intent of the heart. So, I thought of an axiom that almost sounds like a truism. A truism is something that's not really telling you anything because it's true just because it's true. But it really is more than that. So, here's my axiom We cannot know what cannot be known. Let me say it again. We cannot know what cannot be known then i have a couple that makes it nice and succinct i added two brackets we cannot know with certainty which what cannot be known by ordinary means why do you think people read horoscopes why do they go to witches and why do they go to the occult and the shamans they're wanting to know things that God has it revealed. There is a lot of Christian theology that's based on the idea we're learning secret things. Some of this I got from those videos that we discovered on that hard drive. So I'm watching what we were teaching back then and thinking, this is right, I need to practice it. We don't know. We don't know what are some of the things we don't know we don't know the future providential will of God what's the providential will of God how he oversees all of history all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose all things is literal God oversees all of history but unless the Bible prophesies something like the return of Christ or Daniel's 70th week or the millennium or the final judgment things we know will happen because God said so we don't know God's future providential will now let's apply that right now Tuesday is the election we do not know who's going to win do we what do we know? God raises up the rulers and the authorities. Does that imply they're all good? No. When God, when that was taught, wicked Nero was the king and the emperor. Whether they're good or they're evil, it's God who raises them up for his sovereign purposes in overseeing history. For us... All things work together for the good, for God's saving purposes. But what that is, as far as God's providential will, we don't know. It's part of the secret things that belong to God. You can't go to a soothsayer and find out with certainty what God hasn't revealed. So we don't know who's going to win Tuesday. What do we know? God raises up authorities, human authorities. What if a wicked one is raised up? Kind of seems likely, doesn't it? (laughs) But God is still working together all things for the good of those who love him. That we know. The secret things we don't know. What else do we know that we can actually use? Things revealed belong to us that we may observe the words of this law. We know the revealed moral law of God. So we can rightfully look at leaders and say, this is immoral. This is evil. This is wicked. Why can we do that? Because we know what God revealed. So if somebody's a leader and they're running... And they want us to vote. And they say, I want people to be able to kill unborn babies at any time. What do we know about that idea? it's It's evil, right? We know it's evil because it's the revealed will of God. So we know that's evil. And there are plenty of other things that we know are evil for the revealed will of God. So I think Christians can decide and some people say well there's no gradation of sin. That's wrong isn't it? Because the Bible talks about the greater good and the greater evil. I believe in an ethical system that I, I studied ethics in seminary under a fellow who's known for Dr. rakestraw I didn't agree with his ethic. He was a the perfectionist but he taught well all of the different views that are out there here's the one i believe and if you want to look this up it's probably in the internet somewhere norman geisler we don't agree with everything he teaches but i agree with his ethical analysis it's called graded absolutism if you want to jot it down graded absolutism and here's how it works God wants us to do the greater good. The greater good. See, there's another view. It's the Lutheran one called the lesser evil. Because in Lutheran theology, we sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Sin, 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 sin. So do the lesser sin. And there was a guy that defended that in his ethics book that I have. Well, if that was the way it was, I think we should do the lesser sin. But I think that there's a better way of understanding it, which is called the greater good. Let's see who can find this first. In Hebrews 11, we have somebody who lied to save Hebrew spies. See who can find that. I thought Norman Geisler proved his point brilliantly graded absolutism says this not only should we choose the greater good the greater good is not determined by our own subjective feelings the Bible itself tells you what the greater is in other words some things are more important and Geisler does a good job of defending that view anybody find? is it Rahab? Hebrews eleven thirty-one. Thirty-one. You got the mic, go ahead. Hebrews
2: eleven thirty one. Eleven thirty one says by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies.
0: She received welcome, Decoma, she received the spies. But she lied. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. How did Rahab receive the spies? In by faith. So the Bible doesn't portray her action as a lesser evil, even though she lied, and we know lying is sin. It portrays it as a greater good. Amen. You Go know, ahead. um
2: Bob, I just want to bolster a graded absolutism. Those who read usually reject that system, they claim, and I think falsely, that God's commands are never put in contradiction to one another.
0: Yeah, uh, that would be straw, which I disagree exactly.
2: with. Exactly. Now, as Bob and I are standing here, we're not saying that God is contradictory with his commands, but sometimes the way human beings in, in this world, uh, the way they interact with the commands, they become contradictory. An example of that would be in Acts 5, where we all know that we're to normally submit ourselves to the governing authorities but when the governing authorities tell the apostles you can't preach in the name of jesus they say we must obey god rather than man Acts five twenty nine so they do the greater good great
0: and so yeah that's another one that we would refer to exactly so the probably is published on the internet i've got the books at home but that would be norm geisler i thought he proved his point that's a good illustration so to preach the gospel who we're told not to is the greater good. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, and and Rahab lied to
1: the soldiers. You know, right. So that was government as well to protect the spies. Right. So they could come back. So the
0: greater good was to save God's messengers. Right. And no.
1: okay. And and the Hebrew midwives disobeyed Pharaoh.
0: Yeah. You know, and he, they, they did not um, um, kill the kill the male slaves are we learning anything today uh, i am do you see how this might apply to the election hopefully we can determine what is the greater good yes
2: right so i'm just like a big pretend here but i'm a twenty two-year-old and i'm sitting in university and i'm hearing greater good that to me sounds like the marxist version of greater good so For those 22-year-olds sitting in university, can you give a deeper explanation of the greater good you're speaking of versus the Marxist common good they're hearing about?
0: The difference is what's revealed in Scripture. The difference is the means of grading is revealed in the Bible. Okay? So does the Bible reveal that socialism is the better... Good. I would say to those 22 year old Marxists, why don't you study history? Wouldn't we say that preserving of human life, humans created in the image of God, is a greater good? The Hebrew midwives saved life, Rahab saved life, preaching the gospel saves souls, right? So life is the greater good what happens with Marxism millions of people die 25 million or more died under Stalin under Hitler Hitler was not a right-wing conservative he was a socialist how many knew that Hitler was a socialist what was the what was the philosophy of Nazi Germany national socialism the greater good is the Reich. the Jews need to die people die what happened in Cambodia and Laos millions of people died so always millions of people dying the greater good according to the Bible it is not preserving life is the greater good yes
3: all boils down to the worldview. And uh, the worldview, if I believe that the worldview is one uh, from a Marxist worldview, then my greater good is to preserve that worldview. Or if I'm a Christian and I believe that the Bible is the accurate um, uh, worldview, then that's the way I'm going to live my yeah, life. Yeah, if you believe the Bible. That's which... right. In it's situational ethics. So situa- in my situation, ethically, I can uh, probably justify anything. You're rationalizing, based, you rationalizing, it. You rationalize it based on my worldview. So, it um, you know, talking to a Marxist, if they don't believe that that's the worldview, then they're going to believe that that's the way that it should be the greater good. So, uh, no well, question. Well, you about know it. what?
0: Uh, I've actually, when I researched an article I wrote on global warming, by the way, that's something else that cannot be known. Yeah. Nobody knows the climate in the future. Too many variables is unknowable, I wrote about that. We can't know, so you don't worry about what you can't know. Listen, when I researched it, I got into some, have you ever heard of deep ecology? Mm -hmm. I found some of these sites. There are people claiming that humans have an unfair advantage because we have a rational mind, (laughs) (laughs) that all of the humans need to die except for 200,000 elitists who will live in balance with the rest of the creatures. These utopian theories always tell us humans must die. Unborn babies, people who aren't part of the Reich, people who aren't part of the Communist Party, people who aren't part of our race, Whatever it is, humans have to die. Dear saints, the greater good is preserving human life. Because humans are created in the image of God. Human souls can be saved through the gospel. I want to do one more quick thing. The rest of this, we can't do the occult. We don't know the spirit world. So the whole spiritual warfare thing goes out the window because they're claiming we have to know the names of the demons over the cities. It's not revealed. We can't know. It goes out. We do not know the secrets of the human heart. We don't know hidden curses from the past, curse-breaking, inner healing, spiritual warfare. It goes out the window. Our own fears. Here's what I've been doing. This works because It's biblical. As soon as I start worrying, and I do worry, I start worrying. Usually it's about what somebody thinks about me. I offended somebody. I forgot to call somebody I should have. They're disgusted with me. I start thinking like that. Here's the question. Do I know the thoughts of somebody else's heart? No. Okay, done with that one. I'm happy. (laughs) Try it. It's based on the truth of the Bible. It's amazing how it gets over the fear of man. Go ahead.
1: Uh, You're so right when you made that comment about maybe those students should have taken a history class because I recently saw one of these interviews on the street at college campuses. They were interviewing them and asking them who uh, they think that Bush was the cause for more deaths than Stalin and Pol Pot. Okay? So without the history, they, they just don't know. But this is, this is what's going on. Yeah. on Guess, the
0: college. Campus. By the way, thank you. Let me tell you this. I said God's future providential will cannot be known. But you know what can be known? History. History is facts that can be known. And don't go with revisionist history. Go with what really happened. Millions of people always die under socialism. So before you go vote for a socialist, keep that in mind. People die. Unborn babies are created in the image of God.
3: Okay? Well, just, just in closing, what's interesting is I was going to college and, uh, in, in really the late 70s, middle, uh, you know, mid 80s. I, that's when I was going to college. But there was something called the population bomb, the whole concept of that our whole planet is, you know, getting bigger and bigger and that type of thing. Now what they're finding is called the demographic winter, and really what's going on is to just repopulate a population. I think it's 2.1 or something in that neighborhood. Much of Europe right now is 1.3. And what's happening is you're having an aging population without a replenishing of the world. So it's almost the opposite. So as you look at China and they only had, you know, one child that they were able to do it. Now they want to end up coming in and repopulating. Uh, you're seeing that yeah. all over the world today. It's a complete Guess reversal. Guess what, by the way? What's that? What, did, what
0: is God's revealed will? Go ahead and say it. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Fill the earth, yeah. God says, fill the earth. Deep ecologists said, kill all the people. Except for us, Al Gore gets to live. <laughs> Dear, well, let's, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth and help us to not worry, but know what we can know and not worry about what we can't. Give us peace in our hearts as we trust in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Love you all. God bless you. you.